You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around looking at me. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. It was another beautiful one in Los Angeles. And now it's time for your weekly bit of film history. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got The Batman. First off, I picked a hell of a film to, for the first time, not look up the running time before I walked into the theater because, Jesus Christ, this thing was just shy of three hours. Did it need to be three hours or anywhere near three hours? Hell no. It was repetitive as all get out, and every person I've been in a room with who's seen it, when they were asked how they thought it was, the first thing before critiquing it or praising it in any manner is, oh my god, long. So if that's your first takeaway of a movie, you might want to consider, you know, shortening it up a little bit. It was pretty good. It was good. I liked that Batman was more of a detective in this one and that it focused more on like the seedy underbelly of Gotham than all the fancy parties. It was a little bit smarter than a lot of the other Batman films are. And I really liked that. The cinematography was super, super like gritty and cool. I loved it. And for Robert Pattinson, it might just be enough to get those pesky Twilight films off his back. We'll see. So, for this week's topic, we're covering Hollywood's original It Girl and one of the most beautiful women to ever grace the silver screen, Clara Bow. From tragic beginnings to a high-flying Hollywood career, the stress of being the world's biggest movie star would eventually be Clara Bow's undoing. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. above a, quote, bleak, sparsely furnished room of a dilapidated Baptist church in the slums of Brooklyn, Cara Gordon Bow was the third child of Robert and Sarah Bow, the first to survive infancy. The population density of this area at this time was greater than that of modern-day Calcutta. By the time Clara was four, her father was unemployed and drunk. The family moved at least 14 times between Clara's birth on July 29, 1905 to 1923. Sarah, Clara's mother, had fallen out of a window when she was 16, leading to a lifelong struggle with mental illness. Clara spent much of her young life taking care of her mother as her father was often absent, creating a complicated relationship between the two. The psychosis caused mood swings in Sarah, and she would often lash out at her daughter. Clara would later state that taking care of her mother at this time deprived her of a childhood. 
As she grew up, Clara was shy, especially around her cohorts at school, who teased her for her worn-out clothes and ginger hair. I can say from experience, there is nothing worse than a girl going through puberty. They are so goddamn mean. As a result, Clara began to prefer the company of her male classmates, and her right hook, according to her, was a thing of legends. As Clara grew up, she, like half the population of the U.S. in the 1920s, fell in love with the moving pictures. She was a member of the first generation to be fully influenced by the movies, and they became a safe space for her from the chaos of her life. Quote, for the first time in my life, she said, I knew there was beauty in the world. For the first time, I saw distant lands, serene, lovely homes, romance, nobility, glamour. As she analyzed the performances on the screen, she felt a calling she'd never felt before. Perhaps this, quote, square, awkward, funny-faced kid could be an actress, too. Her mother was hardcore against this idea, believing actors to be no better than, in her words, streetwalkers. Without her mother's knowledge, but with her father's support, 16-year-old Clara competed in Motion Picture Magazine's annual nationwide acting contest, Fame and Fortune, in fall 1921. She dropped out of high school to take part in the competition. Several of the previous winners of this contest had gotten work in the pictures, and Clara hoped the same might be true for her. Clara ended up winning the contest, and she received an evening gown and a silver trophy, and the magazine made promises to help her find work, but nothing happened at first. Clara's father told her to haunt the magazine's office until they came up with something. While she wanted to do this, Clara believed that this was an effort on her father's part to get her out of the house. Sarah's condition worsened gradually, and when she realized her daughter's movie career might just take off, Sarah told her daughter that she, quote, would be much better off dead. One night in February 1922, Clara awoke to a butcher knife pressed against her throat by her own mother. She was able to fend her mother off, and in the morning, Sarah had no recollection of the fact that she tried to kill her own kid. Clara ended up living on the streets for three days for her own safety, as her father was, of course, nowhere to be found. Robert would, not long after, place his wife in a sanatorium. Despite the family drama, Richard continued to encourage his daughter to seek out work. This was easier said than done, as, according to Clara, every casting agent seemed to have an issue with her. She was too young. She was too fat. She was too small. She was definitely young, and she was definitely small, and she was definitely not fat. Clara was introduced to director Christy Cabane, who cast her in Beyond the Rainbow, which was shot in 1921 and released on February 19, 1922. Clara was in five scenes and had impressed the director with her ability to cry on cue, but, as can happen in the movie business, Clara's part was cut from the final print. She was devastated. She had told all those haters she had gone to school with that she was in a movie, and now she looked a fool. It would be director Elmer Clifton who would give Clara the part she needed to break into the industry. You see, he needed a tomboy for his movie Down to the Sea in Ships and had seen Clara in motion picture classic magazine. He ended up casting her at $50 per week, which is about $840 a week in today money. Clara later learned that one of the magazine's sub-editors had urged Clifton to give her a chance. 
Down to the Sea in Ships was shot on location in Bedford, Massachusetts. It premiered at the Olympia Theater in New Bedford on September 25, 1922, releasing widely in the spring. Clara was 10th billed, but she received stellar reviews. The camera and audiences absolutely loved her. There was no doubt that without any formal training, Clara was a natural. On January 5th, 1923, while Clara was shooting a dancing scene for her third film, Enemies of Women, her father arrived on set to inform her that her mother had passed away. She was just 43. At the funeral, Clara was reportedly so upset that she, quote, went crazy and tried to jump into the grave to be with her mother, shouting at her relatives that they were hypocrites and that they hadn't loved or cared for her mother while she was alive. 1923 had started out rough personally, but Clara had work to do. In spring, she got a part in The Daring Years. In the summer, she got another tomboy part in Grit, a story that dealt with juvenile crime and it was written by F. Scott Fitzgerald. While shooting Grit at Pyramid Studios in Astoria, New York, Clara was scouted by Jack Bachman of an independent studio called Preferred Pictures. He wanted to sign her. The only catch? the lifelong New Yorker would have to relocate to Tinseltown. Bachman offered her a three-month contract, a trial period, which included her relocation expenses and $50 a week when she started working. Clara was torn. She wanted to stay in the Big Apple. Her father, of course, encouraged her to take the risk. So on July 22, 1923, just shy of 18, Clara left New York, her father, and a new boyfriend in the rear view for Hollywood. In late July, Clara was screen tested and a press release from early August states that Clara had become a member of Preferred Pictures, quote, permanent stock, which I'm guessing is 1920s for we hired her for a long term contract, a contract she would soon regret. Preferred Pictures, by the by, was run by B.P. Schulberg, and he became Clara's new boss. The studio would loan her out for thousands of dollars a week to other studios, while Clara herself would take home something between $200 to $750, depending on what it was in her career. If Clara knew this, she didn't care. She was just happy to be making movies. Maytime would be Clara's first Hollywood picture. It was a supporting role in a period romance. She was so good, in fact, that crew members recommended that Clara replace the lead actress, who apparently was not that good. A lot of Clara's early Hollywood films were pretty run-of-the-mill for the era, not even a whisper of what Clara would become later on. Then she was lent to First National Pictures to co-star in Black Oxen. Director Frank Lloyd had been searching for an actress to play the part of a high-society flapper named Janet Oglethorpe. More than 50 actresses had auditioned, but none had quite embodied the character how he saw it. Enter Clara, whom someone had suggested to him. Lloyd would later tell the press, quote, Bo is the personification of the ideal aristocratic flapper. Mischievous, pretty, aggressive, quick-tempered, and deeply sentimental. Clara was not the original flapper girl, that was Frances Marion, but Clara would soon build an entire professional image upon that of the flapper. Now, for some historical context, three years before Clara's Hollywood debut in Maytime, prohibition had been enacted in the U.S. with the ratification of the 18th Amendment. This made the production, sale, and distribution of alcohol super-duper illegal. Contempt for this whole prohibition nonsense was a factor in the rise of the flapper, which in basic terms was just a new modern woman of the day. 
With the reputable saloons and cabarets closed, back alley speakeasies became mad popular. Writers like Escott Fitzgerald would romanticize the flapper in his works. A group of attractive, reckless, and independent women who wore heavy makeup, chopped their hair off, shortened their skirts, drank alcohol, smoked cigarettes, drove cars, had casual sex like the men did, and otherwise just denounced all social and sexual norms of women up to this point. Flappers would become an icon of the Roaring Twenties. Throughout the 1920s, Clara played with gender conventions and sexuality in her public image as well as on screen. Along with her tomboy and flapper roles, she starred in boxing films and even posed for promotional photographs as a boxer. By doing all of this, Clara presented herself as a confident modern woman. Her expressions and persona leaped off the screen. It would be Max Factor that would give Clara her early signature look. He dyed her ginger hair black, although she would later dye it back, thinned her eyebrows, and gave her the little button, mouth, developing a whole new look for the actress. This turned her into the ultimate package, talented, smart, pleasant, and beautiful. Men wanted her, women wanted to be her, so they all flocked to the pictures to see her. 1924 was a big year for Clara. She appeared in eight films, including her first starring role. That film was Poisoned Paradise. In the film, she even has a fist fight. By the end of that year, Clara's father had joined her in Los Angeles. He moved into her home and immediately began latching off his daughter. When he would visit her on set, Robert would walk around telling everyone that he was Clara Bow's father. And he was still a big old drunk. Clara received a recognition by an ad agency as one of cinema's rising stars. When she had to take a publicity trip up to San Francisco, her father, who was supposed to be her chaperone, got wasted and wasn't allowed on the train. Clara had to make the trip by herself. The following year, Clara appeared in 14 films, six for Preferred Picture, her home studio, and eight on loan at other studios. It is estimated that she was working on four to five films at a time during this era. Actors were treated completely opposite from how they are now, which is like very gently with like the linen gloves, like, oh, you talented little actor. Oh, please, please perform. We need you. We're here for you. Back then, they were the workhorses of the film, the ones bouncing from film to film to film to film to film. The train was about to come to a stop for preferred pictures because they just couldn't compete with the bigger studios. The bigger studios had also formed a trade association called the MPDA, the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, which by the way is still around today, but now is known as the MPA. And the MPDA pretty much just sucked the life out of the independent studios, which included Preferred, and it went bankrupt. Three days after filing for bankruptcy, it was announced that Schulberg was hired at Paramount, one of the studios that had killed his preferred pictures, as an associate producer. Clara Bow was signed to Paramount not long after. Things fizzled out with the hometown boyfriend, which honestly happens more than those types of relationships succeed in entertainment, and Clara began to date her co-star Gilbert Rowland, whom became her first fiancé. On April 12, 1926, Clara officially signed on to Paramount's roster. Her starting salary was $750 a week. At Paramount, Clara hit the ground running. In 1926, she starred in eight films, five of which were for Paramount. 1927 was probably her biggest year. She became wildly popular after the film It, a film adapted from an Eleanor Glynn novella. In the film, Clara plays a shop girl whom goes after her boss sexually. By showing this on film, 
Clara and the filmmakers flipped the script for women as to whom got to pursue whom for a romantic relationship. The film ended up being a tremendous box office success and earned the actress the nickname The It Girl. Clara had now become the on-screen embodiment of the flapper. She became a style icon as well, with her particular look copied by women across the country. It even served as inspiration for Peppy Miller in the film The Artist from 2011. At this time, Clara was receiving more mail each week than the average U.S. town of 5,000 people. All some people had to do to get a letter to her was just address it to Miss It Girl, Hollywood, California, and it would arrive. (laughs) Clara loved her fans and actually related more to them than her Hollywood cohorts. She believed she was just a movie fan who was lucky enough to get to be in the pictures. Next was Wings. The part Clara would play in that motion picture was specifically beefed up for her to ensure that this $1.2 million film would actually be profitable. $1.2 does not sound like a lot, and by today, that is a very, very, very low-budget film, but that was over double what an average film was made for at that time. Clara would play the literal girl next door, named Mary, to Jack, whom would soon be going off to war with his hometown rival, David. Both boys are desperately in love with a woman that is not Mary. Mary later becomes an ambulance driver and joins the war effort, and when she finds Jack, whom she is in love with, by the by, drunk on leave, she attempts to keep him out of trouble by pretending to be a Parisian woman of the night, luring him away from the party, and stashing him in her room. To military police and getting the wrong idea about the situation, Mary is forced to resign from the military and return home. Eventually, the war comes to an end. Jack returns home. The two reunite, and he realizes that he was in love with Mary all along. Wings was a colossal smash hit. It played for 63 weeks at the movie theaters. The film would go on to win the first Academy Award for Best Picture, then called Outstanding Picture, the only silent film ever to do so. The artist does not count, and you can fight me on that. The good came with the bad. Known for having a fun and affable personality, Clara was suffering from an overloaded work schedule, celebrity scrutiny, and the lingering traumas of her upbringing. She was also shunned from the higher echelon of society in Hollywood, who saw her as one of the boys. This was the girl who would eat lunch with the grips each day on set. And that's probably why everyone she worked with on set only had good things to say about her. The muckety-mucks disagreed, but she knew who she was and who she wanted to spend her time with, and this was taken as an affront to those performers and other higher-ups who wanted to leave their humble origins behind them. Clara had been invited to swanky parties in the beginning, mind you, but the way she acted at them quickly spread around town and those invitations quickly ceased. One story goes that she was invited to dinner at the Beverly Hills Hotel and showed up in a swimsuit and high heels. This was completely against the hotel's dress code, which Clara was not a fan of. She didn't understand why anyone cared what she was wearing. The cracks in Clara began to show during the filming of 1927's Rough House Rosie, in which Clara played a boxer trying to hobnob with members of high society. For much of her life, Clara had suffered from insomnia, and this caused a breakdown during shooting. Paramount gave her a three-month holiday. This fixed one stressor in her life, but there were many, many more. 
Clara's love life had been under constant scrutiny for a while at this point in the press, which the studio encouraged as it drove home that flapper image Paramount was desperate to project on her. Clara would call the men she was seeing her engagements, which was 1920s for We Bangin'. Clara would have intense but brief relationships, and the press reported on every little bit of every single one. A modern example of this would be like Taylor Swift a la the mid-2010s. Clara's assistant even released a pamphlet of all the men Clara had allegedly engaged with. This included actor Gary Cooper and director Victor Fleming. Clara would break from the mold of a Hollywood superstar and come clean with a magazine about her past. Her real past. This was kind of against the rules at this time. Actresses were supposed to be these fancy, refined women that just descended from the heavens to be in motion pictures. Not former poor people. That was gross. Her reputation became so damaged that when other actors would get famous, had they been friends with Clara, they would deny even knowing her. This famously happened with everyone's favorite sweetheart, Joan Crawford, with whom Clara had been good friends. When she married Douglas Fairbanks Jr., the son of full-blown Hollywood royalty, Joan claimed that she didn't even know Clara at all. If audiences hadn't been completely in love with her and her movies weren't making oodles of money, I'm pretty sure Clara would have been kicked out of Tinseltown years prior. Clara was one of, frankly, not a lot of actresses that transitioned to the talkies. In fact, the transition to sound didn't even seem to touch her career, as in 1925, she appeared in three. That didn't mean she liked them. Clara was given two weeks to soften her heavy Brooklyn accent, and this resulted in a phobia of the microphone. Remember, Clara has had zero formal training and had not been a stage actor at any point, so she had never needed her voice to perform up to this point. She was starting from square one with talking and performing, and it was a major factor in her keeping her job. She relied, as many silent actors did, on a director being able to talk her through performance to tell her what to do and when. This was now impossible. She would also get easily distracted by the microphone dangling over her head like a cat. Clara detested talkies like many of her silent contemporaries, believing them to be a passing fad. She once said, quote, I hate talkies. They're stiff and limiting. You lose a lot of your cuteness because there's no chance for action, and action is the most important thing to me. Remember, in these early days, the actors couldn't move around a lot because the microphones were funky. The pressure continued to wear heavily on Clara, and in October 1929, she stated that her nerves were, quote, all shot, that she had reached, quote, the breaking point. The magazine Photoplay cited that they had seen, quote, rows of bottles of sedatives at her bedside. This was likely in part to help with her insomnia. Also in 1929 was the Wall Street crash, which brought on the Great Depression, and Clara's scandals went from being water cooler talk to causing full-blown public anger at the actress. Tales of her paying off a doctor for 30 grand or losing $14,000 in a casino angered the public, many of whom couldn't feed their own families. A lot of these stories were also written and embellished to make the situations more scandalous than they actually were. Four Clara Bow films came in 1930, and she was still pretty popular, second only to Joan Crawford at the box office. She even met her future husband while working on 1930s, true to the Navy, 
Rex Bell. But things are about to go to hell in a handbasket pretty quickly. In 1931, Clara fell to the fifth highest box office draw, which is still really good, but the pressures of fame, public scandals, overwork, and a damaging court trial charging her secretary Daisy DeVoe with financial mismanagement took their toll on Clara's already fragile emotional health. DeVoe told lies upon lies about Clara's personal life, which permanently stained the actress's reputation. One article accused Clara of gambling orgies, regular orgies, bestiality, lesbianism, and despite the author of the article getting sent to prison for getting busted for telling lies that he published in those articles, those specific articles, the damage to Clara Bow's reputation was done. When Clara read the article, she threw up. Her mental health continued slipping, and Schulberg began referring to her as Crisis a Day Clara. In April, she was taken to a Glendale sanatorium, and at her request, Paramount released her from her final film with them, City Streets. In 1931, Clara retreated to a ranch in Nevada purchased by Rex Bell, and the two founded the Walking Box Ranch, which is still open today. He did so to get Clara out of Hollywood and protect her from the constant scrutiny she was facing. Soon after, the two married in a small ceremony in the still small town at that time of Las Vegas. In an interview on December 17th of that year, Clara detailed her new health regimen, which included, get this guys, sleep, exercise, and food. And the day after the article published, she returned to Hollywood, quote, for the sole purpose of making enough money to be able to stay out of it. By the way, the studios were throwing themselves at her while Paramount wasn't, even though she had left town. Mary Pickford wanted her to play her sister in a film for United Artists. Howard Hughes wanted to sign her to a three-picture deal. MGM wanted her for a film, all of which Clara turned down. What had tempted her back to Hollywood was a lucrative two-picture deal with Fox Film, the money of which Clara and Rex would use to build an opulent ranch house. The films she did for Fox were called Call Her Savage from 1932 and Hoopla from 1933, both of which did incredibly well. Hoopla would be Clara Bow's final film. She was 28 years old and had made 57 movies in about a 12-year career. Her last public performance was in 1947 on the radio show Truth or Consequences. Clara was the mystery voice in the show's Mrs. Hush Contest. Clara retired to the desert, seemingly for good, with Rex, and the couple soon welcomed two children, Tony Beldum, Rex's real surname was Beldum, in 1934, and George Beldum Jr. in 1938. Unfortunately, despite getting out of Hollywood, Clara's mental health continued to decline. She began showing some severe mental health problems in the mid-1940s. She became hermit-like, and although she refused to socialize with her husband, she also refused to let him leave the house alone. In 1944, while Belle was running for the House of Representatives, Clara tried to take her own life. A note was found in which she stated she preferred death to a public life. She was terrified at the notion of becoming a politician's wife. In 1949, at the age of 44, Clara checked into the Institute of Living, which was a psychiatric hospital in Connecticut, for treatment for her chronic insomnia and widespread abdominal pains. Shock treatment was administered, as you do, and numerous psychological tests performed. Her pain was considered a delusion, and she was diagnosed with schizophrenia despite not having two of the major symptoms for that illness. She had never reported any auditory nor visual hallucinations. 
Analysts tied the onset of the illness, as well as her insomnia, to the traumas of her childhood. While in therapy there, she uncovered memories, which included that her mother had been a part-time sex worker when things had gotten real rough for the family, and that her father had sexually assaulted her while her mother was institutionalized. When Clara left the Institute, she did not return to the desert to be with her family. Instead, she lived with a practical nurse in a bungalow in Culver City, which she rarely left for the remainder of her life. One of the only times she left that house was in 1962 to attend the funeral of her husband, Rex, whom had died of a heart attack. On September 27, 1965, at age 60, Clara Bow died of a heart attack. Fans lined up for days to pay their respects at her funeral. She is interred at the Forest Lawn Cemetery in Glendale, California, next to her husband, Rex. Clara Bow doesn't really get the respect she's due because of the loss of several of her films and the fact that the majority of them were silent and that once she was done with Hollywood, she pretty much stayed out of Hollywood. Today, we have 30 or so of Clara's 57 films, which is pretty good, so knowledge of her and her work is steadily increasing with time. Hopefully, as I do with all filmmakers and performers from the silent era, because they are the unsung heroes of cinema, she will one day soon be fully appreciated as the Hollywood it girl she was once more. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're covering probably the queen of all silent film and one of the most important Hollywood figures, Mary Pickford. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.